Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. I'm so glad that you're joining me today. We're in the middle of the week, and we're going to spend the rest of this week talking about lessons on financial management. I'm going to give you 10 lessons I've learned from experience and the experience of others about the matter of biblical stewardship. Now, this is how Chuck Swindoll opens one of his sermons on money. He says, Oscar Wilde, Irish playwright and author of yesteryear, wrote The Picture of Dorian Gray. Young people nowadays imagine that money is everything. And when they grow older, they know it. Another statement on money, especially I like from the former heavyweight boxing champion, Joseph Lewis, said, I don't like money, actually, but it quiets my nerves. But my all-time favorite is from Sophie Tucker when she spoke of the needs of a woman. She says, from birth to 18, a girl needs good parents. From 18 to 35, she needs good looks. And from 35 to 55, she needs a good personality. And from 55 on, she needs cash and a lot of it. You know, as important as money may be, we are well aware that there are some things that money can't buy. Just consider these. Money can buy medicine, but not health. Money can buy a house, but not a home. Money can buy companionship, but not friends. Money can buy entertainment, but not happiness. Money can buy some food, but not an appetite. Money can give you a bed, but not necessarily sleep. Money can buy a crucifix, but not a savior. Money can buy the good life, but not eternal life. So when it comes to money and material possessions, too many of us, if we're completely honest, are owned by the things that we own. Like slaves serving an unrelenting master, We spend our lifetimes making money so that we can buy stuff that just gets old and breaks down and needs to be repaired. And then we have to make more money to replace or to repair all that stuff. Let me give you four simple single-syllable words that will give you freedom, real financial freedom. Now, these words aren't original with me, and quite frankly, they shouldn't sound all that profound. But I've never come across four words in my studies that can make us free from financial bondage. And here it is. The first point, God owns it all. In Exodus 19, verse number five, all the earth is mine. Now, I used to believe that what I earned is mine. And God wants me to give back to him 10%. But I've come to realize that God owns it all. Now, he expects us to manage what is his. And part of that management is giving back, giving back to the owner that which he invested in me. It's called the return on investment. In Psalm 89, though, we are reminded that the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and everything in it. You founded it. Now, Haggai gets even more specific. Haggai 2.80 says, The silver belongs to God, and the gold is his, declares the Lord of hosts. So God owns it all. 
Now, this first point on financial freedom is just a constant reminder that I think that we so easily tend to forget. Kind of reminds me of a funny story that I heard many years ago. God was once approached by a scientist who said, now listen, God, we've decided that we don't need you anymore. These days, you know, we can clone people, we can transplant organs, we can do all sorts of things that used to be considered miraculous. God replied, oh, don't need me, huh? Well, how about we put your theory to the test? Uh, why don't we have a competition to see who can make a human being? Let's say a male human being. The scientist agrees. So God declares that they should do it like he did it in the good old days when he created Adam. Fine, says the scientist. And he bends down and he scoops up a handful of dirt. Whoa, says God, shaking his head in disapproval. Not so fast. You got to get your own dirt. You see, it all belongs to him. God is the source of everything. That's why Philippians 4.19 reminds us that God will supply for all of our needs, according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. You see, he owns it all. The book of Proverbs reminds us that as we look at our lives, I lead in the way of your righteousness, in the midst of the paths of your judgment, that I may cause those who love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. You see, God owns it all. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Now, I'm so glad that God owns it all. And because God owns it all, he is the one that can help us to manage what he allows us to borrow. We're all just borrowing from him. And when we look at borrowing from him, remember he owns it all. Here's the second point. If you really want to live in financial freedom, you got to recognize, first of all, that God owns it all. Number two, greed is deadly. Now, a strict literal reading of some of the Bible passages that we're going to read might not at first sit well with those who are extremely wealthy. You see, in this championing uh, of the poor and taking advantage of those who are oppressed, rich men are often cast in a negative light. But let's look up a couple passages that talk about the dangers of greed and the fact that greed is deadly. Now, Mark 10.25 is often quoted as a passage that might not sit well with those who have the ability to amass a great amount of wealth. Because Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, notice Jesus doesn't say it's impossible, but it's difficult. And the reason it is so difficult is because their God is their wealth. It's hard for them to relinquish the control of that wealth, to trust God instead of their riches, which are so uncertain. Now, there's a famous warning that Paul gives to Timothy. And it's found in 1 Timothy 6.9. 
Paul says, you know, those who want to get rich fall into a temptation. So if you have the desire to get rich, you want to get rich, you've got to remember that you're going to lead yourself into a certain temptation, a certain snare, and you're going to find yourself going down many foolish paths and having harmful desires. And Paul says that can plunge men into ruin and destruction. Then he says the love of money, not money itself, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing to have it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So Paul is reminding us that if we have this desire to get rich, we're entering into a new category of temptation. And it can lead us to ruin and destruction. If we set out to love money, and that sets out to be the primary motivation of our lives, we are opening ourselves up to the root of all sorts of evil. Now, again, having money is not the source of evil. The source of evil is when money has you, when you are a slave to money, when you do everything based upon the bottom line. Paul says you ought to flee these things. You ought to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now, we have even harsher words, right? Jesus said greed is deadly and that you can not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the more money you have, the more difficult it is for you to have faith in God. And then he reminds us that if we love money, that is the root of all kind of evil. But now we have some even more words of harshness as we look at what James says in James 5.1. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Now, we hate greed, but we have a hard time admitting we're greedy. Zogby recently conducted a benchmark poll in which respondents were identified and they had different ways they could respond. But they were looking at what was the number one problem in America, and most urgent problem in America culture was poverty. But they said even greater than that was we have our number one problem, even before poverty, is greed and materialism. See, that is what is contributing to our poverty, some believe, is because we have so many people that are greedy. So they discovered that 78% of Americans disagreed with the famous golden quote that greed is good. Only 19% agreed that greed is good. But surprisingly, although everyone thinks greed is a terrible problem, most people don't think they are greedy. They conducted this poll on the seven deadly sins, anger, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, and sloth. Greed was last on the list. Very last, which sin have you ever committed? And which sin have you committed in the past month? 
That was on the bottom of the list. Now, there was plenty of uh, people who said laziness was their big thing and plenty who said pride, but they had a hard time admitting to being greedy. On this list, Tim Keller argues, even though it is clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it's true of them. You see, greed hides itself from the victim. When we think about greed, we have discovered that greed actually rewires our brain. There is some neuroscience research that says greed makes a person angry, hostile, and depressed. Well, here's the study they did. A recent neuroscience research reveals a profound truth that this relentless pursuit of wealth and success, often celebrated in our culture, can actually lead to a significant emotional and psychological distress. This study dives into this matter of those who are giving themselves over to greed. It was 400 individuals that delved deeply into a greed personality trait called GPT. And it uncovers the high levels of greed personality trait increases the matter of depression, anger, and aggression. In other words, they find a correlation that those who are always out with a greedy personality tend to be increased in the number of depressions, the number of anger outbursts, and the number of aggressions. This correlation extends beyond behavior, and it looks at the actual brain structure. As neuroimaging data indicates, significant impact on specific brain regions in those who have higher greed traits. So greed actually can rewire your brain. The greedy person's brain actually has a domino effect. The participants with a higher GPT score reported having more issues of neurological patterns that are changing. Neuroimaging revealed that regions associated with emotion uh, regulation, that is decision-making and empathy, show distinct patterns of activation in these individuals. This suggests that greed can fundamentally alter our brain functioning, leading to a heightened propensity for negative emotions. So in economic terms, a culture that rewards greed invites financial instability. Now, we know this is true, even in recent history, okay? I'm going back a few years to the 2008 financial crisis. In this particular crisis, it was a crisis created really because of a corporate setting. What had happened is we had environments where you could make a lot of money in the housing industry. And so they were greedy to write loans and to get that kickback with all the writing of these loans. And they discovered that it affected our country. Now, when we look at this, if we are filled with greed, psychologically something happens to us. Something happens to the way we respond in our minds. We experience a higher level of emotional unrest. This is crucial for the understanding of how we can be set free as followers of Christ. We don't have to give in to our greed. The study revealed that it's important that we have a culture that does not 
emphasize greed. It's hard to create that culture void of the Holy Spirit of God. So one of the reasons I'm praying for revival is because when a heart of a person is changed, their mind is rewired to be more like Christ. They will no longer be filled with greed. They will be able to be filled with loving, helping others. Has it ever occurred to you that maybe God wants to increase your standard of living, not so that you can be in a different tax bracket, but so that you can take some of those resources and be a blessing to others? That God wants to bless you because He wants you to be a conduit in which you can bless that honor or send that on to others. Well, if you want to have financial freedom, you must remember God owns it all. Number two, greed is deadly. But number three, you've got to manage your debt. Let's look at Romans chapter 13. Paul writes these poignant words to us. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Now, Romans chapter 13 is a fascinating chapter. It deals with how we as believers relate to those in authority over us. Paul has spent 12 chapters explaining the doctrine of the believer. Now he's getting into the aspect of this is how we live based upon what we have believed. And he says, as a result of our relationship with Christ, we are to let no debt remain outstanding except for one. In other words, I'm going to always be in debt to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm always going to have that debt to them. I'm always going to have that debt to love them. I never pay that debt off. However, I should not let debt, financial debt, remain outstanding. Now, Paul is not saying from this verse, we should not borrow money. Some people have wrongly concluded that's what Paul is saying. Don't let a debt remain outstanding. No, Paul is saying you pay your debts. You don't go without paying your debts. You pay your debts. So if you're going to buy a house, for example, and there's going to be a mortgage on that house, you pay that mortgage. And and thankfully, they give you time to pay that mortgage. So you don't skip your mortgage payment. You don't let it remain outstanding. You pay it. Now, don't go get a mortgage that you can't afford, right? It's better to live in a smaller house that you can afford than a bigger house that you can't afford. So let no debt remain outstanding. So manage your debt. Now, when it comes to this matter of debt, did you know that nearly half of Americans are ashamed of the debt that they carry. Now, there's a stigma with carrying debt, especially credit card debt, right? More than a third of Americans say they would be embarrassed to let others know that they're not paying off their credit card debt in full every month. More than 40% say they believe they will be judged by family and friends because of the credit card debt they carry. The surprising thing is that Americans' average credit card debt is over $15,000. Now, uh, there's an elephant in the room that we need to talk about, right? An executive for the firm that completed the survey said, it's no surprise that shame about debt isn't necessarily productive in preventing or eradicating it. 
Shame doesn't guarantee success. The only way to pay off that is to face it head on and make a plan to get rid of it. When I think about shame, maybe you have somebody in your life that battles addiction. And there's this tendency to say, well, shame on you. How could you lose your job over alcohol? Or how could you allow your family to fall apart because of drugs? And sometimes we think, well, if I shame them enough, that will get them on the right track. But I've discovered that shame doesn't guarantee success. Sometimes shame actually makes them go deeper into that addiction. The only way that you're going to overcome an addiction to spending, an addiction to anything that you have in life, is to acknowledge that you have been living in denial long enough. Face it square on, face it head on, and make a plan. You see, debt only empowers the wicked, and it drags down hope for those who want to live according to God's word. You know, the Bible says these ancient warnings against moneylenders are just as relevant today as they were back in that day. So Proverbs 22, 7 says, The rich rule over the poor. The borrower becomes the lender's slave. So let's deal with this matter of debt. We can have victory over debt. You know, maybe you remember having a ton of debt. I remember I had some debt, and it was burdening me down, and and I, I really felt like I was a slave to this payment I had. And I was paying for a car that was worth less than the amount of money I owed on it. And it was overwhelming me. And so I, I finally got myself out of that situation. When I finally was set free of that, man, it's like a burden was taken off of my shoulder. You see, the Bible warns us about debt from thousands of years ago. And I think one of the best things for most of us to do is follow that old, timely, wise advice. Now, those who jump into debt and get into a situation that they can't afford the car they're driving, then maybe it's going to get repossessed. Let's find some guidance, right, from God's Word. Now, let's follow Proverbs twenty-two twenty-six. Don't be that man who enters into a, a loan that you cannot pay. Pay back your debt. Now, when we look at debt, there's a verse that I, that I love in the book of Exodus. Now, banks aren't going to follow this, but this is, I think, believer to believer. It says, if you lend people uh, to my people money to the poor among you, you're not to act as a creditor to them, you shall charge him no interest. And so here in biblical times, and, and uh, one believer borrowing money from another believer, they were to pay it back, but they weren't to put interest on that. And so here would be the point. Don't let somebody borrow money from you that you cannot afford not to receive back. So that I think it would be a good principle to follow in your life. So God owns it all. Greed is deadly. Number three, manage your debt. And then number four, we're going to get into number four just briefly, but we'll finish it up tomorrow. Live on the 8-10-10 plan. Now, join me tomorrow and I'll explain deeper what the 8-10-10 plan is. In Luke 6.38, Jesus talks about giving. He says, if you give, it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will men give to your lap, okay? Uh, so 
The 80-10-10 plan is I'm going to live on 80% of my income. I'm going to save 10% and I'm going to give 10%. Well, a whole lot more could be said about that. And when it comes to this matter of giving, remind yourself that whoever gives in a sparing way will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully or generously will also reap bountifully. So if you live on this 80-10-10 plan, I promise you, you will be living in financial security. So join me tomorrow and we'll follow up on this subject. Now, if I can pray for you today, I'd love to do that. Just shoot me a text at 252-267-2365 and I would love to pray for you today. So Lord, thank you for every person listening to this broadcast. I pray a prayer blessing upon them. I pray for their safety as they may be cruising down the highway. I pray that you get them home to their families in one piece. Allow them to enjoy their time with their family. And Lord, as we get to the weekend, I pray that they will be involved in a good Bible-believing church where they can go and they can serve and they can be a blessing to their pastor and a blessing to their congregation. Thank you for being with us today, another broadcast day. We just give this whole day to you. Thank you for your goodness to us, your love for us, the fact that you love us even more than we love ourselves. And even when we were without love, you still loved us. So thank you for being with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.